Vox Podcast. I hate doing the welcome. Oh. Uh, this is the Vox Podcast, and we're super excited because the one and only freaking, freaking Gombus is here. <laughs> Yes, yes. Usually, usually people aren't cool enough to join us on the introduction, but Gombus, your family, and Bonnie, we figured this is a bittersweet day. This is Bonnie's last official episode as official co-host, right. uh, although um, we will be seeing Bonnie as long as she will tolerate us. <laughs> and um, for those of you who need reminding, the Fox podcast is thrilled to um, remind you that there are two podcasts being spun off. One by Bonnie that we've talked about called Tim Shell. First episode drops. What date? Same day as this Same one. Same day as this. The sixth. Boom. Yes. And um, our encouragement is always listen to Bonnie's first. And um, and if you know, and then you can listen to this one to fall asleep. And then a week, a week after that, if if having a Vox podcast and a Tim Shell podcast isn't enough, we are here to announce the new Tim Gombas podcast called Faith Improvised, which yep. coincidentally enough is the name of his blog and Twitter handle. So right. way to go, way to go for an for an older guy. You know, to have that kind of branding awareness. That's right. Yeah, I've got some uh, savvy people that I'm related to. <laughs> They've counseled me well. Yes. I just, just got to see if I can pull it off. You never know. And and we're we're thinking the fir the first episode of that will drop sometime in mid July. That's right. We're aiming at July 14th. Aiming at July 14th, and the yeah. Yeah, it's it's always July fourteenth somewhere, so that could be any range. Um, tell it's a big us, target. tell us a little bit about what you what you want to do um, through that podcast. Like, what's the what prompted you to do this? What are you what are you uh, interested in talking about? Um, those sorts of things. Well, I uh, um, what prompted it was this shutdown and um, the loss of conversation partners. Um, one of the reasons, well, probably the biggest reason that I like, I love teaching is, um, uh, I can, I can explore and discover, uh, stuff for myself. I could read and all that kind of thing. But if I'm not processing it with people, um, or if I'm not talking about it, or if I'm not hearing, uh, good questions that come from an angle that I didn't anticipate, I have a hard time processing it. I have a hard time being excited about it unless I'm kind of sharing it with somebody else. And um, teaching uh, provides that avenue for me to be a conversational learner. And when the shutdown occurred, that was gone. Like the classroom yeah. was gone and everything went online. And I was just dying to talk to people about, you know, here's what I'm learning. Here's what I'm reading. Here's what I'm thinking about it. But I don't know if I'm right. And what do you think? Mm -hmm. And, um, was doing a lot more online, you know, started blogging a bit more and writing on Facebook a bit more. So, I mean, generating conversation that way was, was good, but I thought, what the heck, why not do a podcast? And, um, I mean, I've enjoyed doing this with you guys. So is it I true? Thought, is it true Tim, that you thought to yourself, if these clowns can do it, <laughs> then I yeah. can too. Did that ever cross your mind? 
Yeah, I, I was like, if these buffoons can do it. Yes. <laughs> so it wasn't clowns. Okay, excellent. It, no. what, would, what would C.S. Lewis say? Uh, good podcasts must exist for no other reason than to uh, than to counter bad ones. And so That's right. And so where are you going to take this sucker? I have no idea how it's going to go. Perfect. I, uh, it's improvised. I know it's faith it's improvised. Totally yes, Bonnie. Improvised. <laughs> I'm just going to talk about <laughs> subjects that interest me, talk to people that interest me, um, explore some things and hopefully generate conversation partners. I am involved in a several years long study of Romans. So I think maybe like a couple times a month, I might just share what I'm discovering in uh, Romans research. So yeah, that kind All of right. stuff, whatever, whatever's just cooking in my brain. All right. Well, I'll I'll wait for the call. Uh, um, you oh know, yeah, for you there. Interesting conversation partners. Um, no doubt. Inter- interesting. I haven't received that one yet, but okay. <laughs> um, so, so. Um, it's weird because I did. <laughs> of course, of course. I was say. <laughs> All right. So this is this is a big deal, Bonnie. Um, on Monday, when you when this comes out, Monday the sixth. Bonnie's releasing her first Tim Show podcast, and then a week or or so later, Faith Improvised launches. And we're stoked because these are people we love and have tons of respect for, and this is fun um, for us to to watch. Um, all right, turning. I mean, so before kind of we get into the meaty stuff, I just I would like to hear from each of you what has been one highlight this week. All right, in the world of bad news, what's what's the highlight of your week so far? All right. This is un, un, unplanned, unprompted. I have a good Bonnie's, one. Bonnie, what? I have a good you one. You have a good one? Okay, lead us. Okay, so uh, we've been thinking about uh, potty training our daughter since the quarantine. And then every weekend we're like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next weekend, we're like, next weekend, next weekend. Or like when this box of diapers is done. And then we're yeah. like, nope. Yeah. And um, so this is my highlight because it is like just encapsulates her and it's also the funniest thing that's ever happened. And so <laughs> two days ago we wake up and I, she walks out of her room and she's got her piggy bank and she opens the piggy bank and she dumps out all the money, which is a lot of money because she steals from my wallet and puts it in her piggy bank. And so she dumps it out and she <laughs> says, mom, dad, we're like, yes, honey. And she's like, I will give you all this money if you teach me how to use the toilet. And <laughs> Perfect. And she took off her diaper and went and sat on the toilet. And I'm like, I guess we're doing wow. this now. And I was dead. I was like, this is a new low <laughs> if your kid is paying you to parent them. <laughs> That's yeah. a new high. Oh yeah, I was gonna say that's so it was that's good. incredible. Yeah, it was good. It was, cracked me up, and then it shoved us into something we didn't want to do. But now we're almost to the other side, so I'm glad it all happened. Nice. Takes nice. a while. It does. Yeah, Jesus took the wheel. <coughs> um, uh, either of the Tims, anything remotely comparable to that? No one paid me to pee <laughs> this week. That would have been a suicide. But did you even ask? I don't. (laughs) I bet you didn't. I mean, this changes my my possible highlights for next week. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Let's see. I bet you could. I think my highlight was. uh, Yeah. Hmm. 
Yesterday, Shauna took the kids out of the house for a while, and I sat and actually recorded music for like three hours. And I haven't oh, done that in weeks. that's awesome. Because it's always noisy. There's always people here, so I can't do it. So That's really cool. That's kind of like, that's what therapy kind of looks like for me. So Yeah. That was, that cool. was good. That's great. Nice. Good. Mr. Gombus. We just got back uh, yesterday afternoon from three three days camping. Oh. And we were just completely, totally off the grid, no contact, no email, just uh, cooking on the fire, sleeping just in the tent. Just the two of you? Just the two of us. It was, it was glorious. Just hiked uh, in the woods a little bit, uh, sat around by the lake, Lake Michigan, up in the Upper Peninsula. It was great. That's Loved awesome. It. Yeah. Wow. Had a blast. Okay, well, I got nothing on any of those. No recording of music, no potty training, no camping. <laughs> My, um, I take, so so our youngest son loves to swim. My wife found us this community pool that we can just, well, it's, it's in this apartment complex. And so we go swimming most every day. And we are, the, the amount of people we're meeting and making friends with at this pool is hilarious. And so it's been really fun. <laughs> That's so, awesome. So yes, I, um, I am friends with several four-year-olds and um, it's just, and, and to watch my son, he just loves it. He just absolutely loves That's it. So, so we've been doing that like every day this week, which has been, I mean, it's, you know, it's not recording music or anything, but it's, it was all right. When you go, nothing like being in the water. I know that's so fun. Do you get in? Are you a swimmer as well? Oh yeah. Are you a sideliner? I'm I'm more of a floater. I mean, you know, I'm like a big manatee. (laughs) If you know what those are, just they they call them the sea cow. And um, I adopted a manatee for a year in the fourth grade. See the gentle giants. Yeah, they they were in danger for a while. We are. So I just sort of float around and Seth, you know. Swimming is a big gift. Mazzy fell. We've been going down the river and she fell down and split her head open. So we had a oh. whole evening the other day where we had to like, we were at the ER. It was this oh. whole thing. And they glued her head back together. But the first thing the doctor said was like, no swimming or water for 10 days. And it's in oh. the high 90s here. So we're just like, oh. and we've been in the water every day, but you don't, you don't necessarily realize it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, until someone says you can't do it anymore and you're like, oh, okay, well, right. That's going to be a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. That's excellent. And then, and then one last kind of, uh, question before we segue into freaking Gombus. Uh, and was that ever in consideration for the podcast name? Just, um, <laughs> briefly, <laughs> I got right, it Bonnie, this is a question for all of us. If you could describe 2020, the first half of 2020 in one word, what word would you choose? They all have expletives in them. Yes, they do. I was going to say. <laughs> and like, they're also all like hyphenated. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can say it on air. Okay. Okay. All right. All I right. Can just, well, we'll I can just beep them all out. We can skip. We can skip that question. <laughs> um, but we, we can use uh, like in Fantastic Mr. Fox, just substitute everything with cuss. cuss. Yeah. Like it's a total cluster cuss. That cluster that cuss was, is exactly that was what. My okay, right. It's unanimous. <laughs> it's unanimous. It was cluster cuss. That's what it was. I was like, I don't think I can say that. 
Oh, perfect. I was going to go Custorm, but, um, you know, I like that. I like yours better. Um, all right. Can I can I title this episode Cluster Cuss? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Freaking, <laughs> freaking Gombus Cluster Cuss. Yes. That, now that <laughs> is the a, a name for a podcast right there. Um, or a heavy metal album. Either way. So, Dr. Gombus. Um, I don't know if you know this because you've been off the grid for the last three years, but there's been some been some stuff happening in the world, and um, there's some pretty massive conversations being had around race and the church, and um, and so we were eager to talk with you because um, I've heard you in other venues talk about why the the racial conversation is central to the gospel of Jesus and not secondary to that. Because one of the pushbacks I hear a lot from people is, listen, all, we just need Jesus. You know, This is a sin problem mm. and um, everything will get better if we just all come to Jesus. And um, I'd love for you to, to, to kind of get into that a little bit. Um, where is that right and where is that incorrect? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a, that's a very common way of thinking. And it's, um, uh, what I've come to understand, uh, um, and this is, um, this goes at the, this goes to the heart of things and, um, of so many different things. Uh, and it's kind of hard, I think, especially for, uh, Western American, uh, Christian white people to, to grapple with. But uh, and there's not really, I don't know if I have any other way of saying it other than to say um, in American Christianity, in, in white American Christianity, in Protestantism, especially in evangelicalism, we just don't have the gospel right. Mm. We just do not understand the gospel mm. um, uh, because of a variety of forces and, and historical trajectories going back to the founding of the nation even before that. Uh, with Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield and with roots in the Reformation, uh, we have a very individualistic gospel um, that revolves completely around uh, you and I as individuals stand before God guilty. We, we have a sin problem and the gospel is, you know, there's that gulf yeah. and the gospel is that the cross kind of sits down in there and there's a bridge between me and God and Jesus is, you know, Jesus bridges that gap. So I am reconciled to God in the gospel, and um, we then we then might talk about implications of the gospel, like uh, I should love my neighbor, um, and you know, race, uh, racial issues, and other divisions have some maybe something to do with that. And so there's an implication of the gospel that I should then at some point, you know, or if the Lord moves me to do this, to be involved in <laughs> to be involved in something like that. Right. Um, that is just, that's just a, a really bad understanding of, of, uh, the gospel. And that, that scenario, that gospel scenario, um, was necessary for people in America, for white people in America to be Christians and also own slaves. Mm. Um, so you had to, you had to hold to some form of the gospel like that, that has nothing to do with anything else except for me and God. And there's a transaction that takes place there and it affects my eternal uh, destination. 
and I, uh, I could even give that form of the gospel to the black people that I owned if I was a slave owner, because uh, they individually could be reconciled to God, and they too could have an eternal future with God, and that also would have no effect on the current uh, you know, social situation, social mm-hmm. arrangement, the fact that um, you know, all the degradations that went along with how white people treated black people here in America for 401 years, um, all of that sat very well uh, with the kind of gospel that we have inherited. Wow. And um, it's just, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. So when Paul talks about the gospel in one of the places where I think he lays it out most clearly in Ephesians 2, uh, 120 to the end of chapter 2, uh, a key component of that is that um, not only have, have humans been trapped in death, headed for eternal death, and God has brought them out of that and given them life, but in uh, verses 11 and following, um, Paul talks about how humanity had been divided ethnically, nationally, tribally, and what God is doing in the gospel is in Christ, he's putting people back together across ethnic lines, Mm -hmm. creating one new people that uh, will gather together and um, behave as family and will learn the practices of treating one another justly um, and will examine very carefully uh, just how corrupted culture has shaped us uh, to treat each other in ways that are mutually degrading, um, seeing each other as, a, as an inferior other. And um, Paul calls the church to examine the ways that culture has um, slotted us into these kind of ways of thinking and ways of behaving, and then to, to directly counteract them in communities that embody God's justice. Mm. And um, that gospel is basically articulated in Romans, in First uh, Corinthians, in Galatians. Uh, it, it lies behind so much of what's happening in the gospels. When Jesus purposefully goes to Samaria, which is totally offensive, uh, when he talks with the Syrophoenician woman, when he does healings on um, in the ten cities, the Decapolis outside of uh, Judea, mm-hmm. um, everything in the New Testament and going with roots in the Old Testament is dealing with socioeconomic injustices with uh, inter-ethnic tensions and how God is um, uh, in Jesus when he brings in his kingdom by the power of the Spirit. He is creating one new people that that runs against the grain of all of those corruptions and into which he's calling people to to take up these alternative practices that mm-hmm. that um, are basically God's way of living in his world. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, we have to recover that larger biblical gospel. Um, it's going to, I don't know, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of frames of thought that we have to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole host of new frames of thought that we need to cultivate. But How did the earliest followers of Jesus embody this well and embody this poorly? Um. We see it going well in places like um, uh, in the, the church in Antioch to the north in, in Syria, uh, which Barnabas becomes sort of the pastor of in, the, in uh, Acts 12 or 13, where the, which is a uh, multi-ethnic church where Jews and Gentiles actually are gathering together, um, which would have been uh, offensive to Jews to eat with Gentiles. So they're sitting at a common table, 
and probably eating their own. I mean, Jews are probably eating kosher, but they're eating at a table with non-Jews. And um, that's, that is what a, uh, a Pauline New Testament church looked like, a multi-ethnic church where people gather as family and publicly declare their solidarity by having a meal together. Um, there's probably a lot more instances of it going badly, which is why we have so many documents in the New Testament, because most of them are oriented around saying you're doing it wrong. So 1 Corinthians is an instance of them doing it wrongly. Uh, Galatians 2 um, is an instance of it going badly. When, I, when Peter came up from Jerusalem to Antioch, and he joined in those practices of actually eating with non-Jews. Um, but when some fellow Jews came up from Jerusalem, Peter was intimidated and he pulled himself back from fellowshipping with Gentiles and would no longer do it, thinking that his um, uh, having solidarity with non-Jews makes him an unclean before God uh, person and a sinner. Um, and Paul uh, rebukes him there because he stood condemned uh, by, by removing himself. And, um, Paul says that he was not walking straight toward the truth of the gospel. Right. Right. So really the, the Jew Gentile issue is the, um, it's the issue in the new Testament church where right. it just kept getting off track where people kept going back to their tribal alliances, um, and, and had theological reasoning behind it. And, um, mm. first Corinthians is a, it's a thoroughly, uh, Gentile church, almost certainly, and there um, the divisions are socioeconomic with rich and poor, mm. the rich exploiting the poor, um, uh, and Paul saying that God is coming in pretty fearsome judgment against the Corinthians because they're, the rich Christians were exploiting the poor ones. And uh, actually, the other mono-ethnic instance of uh, socioeconomic difference is James, where James, mm -hmm. the whole letter is about um, the rich Jewish Christians having alliances with rich people outside the church and exploiting poor people within the church. Um, and I mean, you read James 5, it is fierce, um, the kind of judgments that are coming on on, um, on people like that. So, well, yeah, of all of these judgments are central. Speaking of fierce judgments, um... The first Corinthians 11, you know, they were not, what was the, what was the issue there? I always, you know, I was always taught that that's the text where you are told that you can't come to the communion table unless you've confessed your sin. Cause yeah. you've got to examine yourself or whatever. And then I realized, oh, there's a whole different thing happening. Just comment on that. If yeah. You yeah. There's uh, I grew up hearing the same thing in many churches my whole life. I've, I've heard the same thing until you then look at first Corinthians 11 uh, and the larger context which is not that much more. It's just, you know, we're used to hearing these five or six verses, but that's, right. that's set within about a 15 verse or 16 verse stretch where um, what's happening there is not that people are coming with a privatized. Well, actually, let me just back up a little bit. The way that we, many evangelicals have practiced Lord's Supper uh, is in a stream of individualized Christianity. It, it goes, um, it goes totally in step with the individualized gospel. Totally. Yeah. I might have some unconfessed sin in my past. Uh, so I come to the table and I examine myself. And if there's anything there, I confess it. And then I can have the cracker juice. But in the first century, um, what's happening there is that 
the unity of the of the church across socioeconomic lines that has to be embodied in a common meal where everybody enjoys a, a thorough meal together and they all sit at the same level and what's happening is that a bunch of rich people are bringing good food good wine and they're eating as like a corinthian dining club with their friends with their people of their same social class and they're shutting out the poor and not allowing them um, to eat with them. And Paul says that they are dishonoring, they're shaming the poor. And really going back to 1 Corinthians 3, they're destroying the church. And so when Paul talks about coming together, he's and about examining yourselves, he's talking about uh, every group and every individual um, coming to the common meal, reflecting on whether they have any uh, attitudes or practices or social patterns that are fostering the division in the church. And if they are to confess that and to turn from it, um, because if they are not rightly um, uh, considering the body, which the corporate body, if they're not rightly considering the body, um, then they're basically going to receive judgment in their bodies. And that's as Paul says that many of them are sick and dying because of that, which is just a, a terrifying passage if you consider our you know we most of us have churches that are uh, white suburban churches urban poor white churches you know urban black churches i mean we are a segregated christian scene in america yeah um which is exactly what uh god did not seek to create in <laughs> sending jesus into the world actually about the first corinthians 11 passage paul says that um when they eat the common meal and do it across socioeconomic and ethnic lines, um, they proclaim the Lord's death. Like, mm-hmm. in fact, that's the only place in the New Testament. Um, there is no place in the New Testament where the church is told to proclaim Lord's death, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're told when they have the common meal, the Lord's death is proclaimed. Like, they proclaim it when they have that common meal. So, gathering across uh, ethnic different difference. Uh, across socioeconomic difference uh, and in, in gender differences and, and ways that everybody is honored, that is the proclamation of the death of Christ. Right. And because he died to create a social reality. Yes. That is called the new humanity in Ephesians totally. and yep. stands as a testimony of victory over the powers. Yep. yep. So, Absolutely. so racial issues go back to the very founding of our movement. Uh, in other words, right? These were these were very the earliest. Some of the earliest issues were how to work this out. Oh yeah, socially. Yeah, to purposefully lean into it and counteract how society orders us. So how has you know? Because I'm 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 seeing now articles, talks, podcasts on the the idea that white supremacy and evangelicalism have gone together. You know, in ways that I think many of us have not realized. Oh, totally. Um, how do you see that? How do you see that playing out from the, so from the earliest moments, the, the Christians realized there were social implications. We've hijacked the gospel so that it's, it's now individualized and that allows us to live with these social injustices. But what else, what else sits behind the, the reckoning that's happening in our culture now within the church? Um, What's just behind it? Uh, well, I guess I would love to see. Um, I'm 
let's see here. I'm not sure that there is, is a reckoning happening in our churches. And I don't think there's going to be one. Hmm. Um, I have no hope there or faith in the white evangelical church to play a key role in any of this. Um, I think that a lot of this is really arising from our larger culture. Like people, um, uh, you know, white America and uh, the white evangelical church have, as you said, um, and I'm typical of this as well, we've been largely asleep to this our whole lives because, um, you know, white culture is basically portrayed as the norm and we're all just in it. We're all just normal. Like, what's the problem here? Um, but this is one of the ways in which uh, the powers and authorities have blinded us to the injustices that are rampant in our culture. Um, they just make us think that it, this is all normal. Um, but there's an awakening happening uh, culture-wide. In fact, I just looked at the New York Times bestseller list the other day, and it's like the top 20 books are all on race, yeah. not fiction, which is so encouraging. People are wanting to learn about this and uh, grow in their understanding of what are the root causes and, and how this manifested in our culture. Um, I would love, I think it's awesome to see by and large. Um, I think there's, I don't have much reason to be hopeful that white evangelicals are going to, are, are, are going to jump into this. And mm. from a, from a profoundly biblical perspective, um, grapple with, um, ways of thinking about this that are fruitful and, uh, and, and lean into this in a genuinely Christian way. I just don't have any hope that that's going to happen. In fact, I think there are reasons why it's not going to happen. And uh, um, yeah, it, it's terrible. So then what do you hope would happen? If it's not that, what, what's, if, if, if you could choose or be like, I think this would be a beautiful representation. And how can white evangelicals uh, be a part of that? Or do you know what I mean? Like what needs to happen? Yeah. I think it'd be great if, um, well, let me just say why I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I, in my opinion, um, we're, we're very blind to issues of race, but I don't think that that's actually the fundamental issue. Mm. Um, fundamentally, it's a, it's an issue of economics. So, in his book, um, uh, shoot, uh, between the world and me, Todd Hissy mm. Coates, which everybody has got to read that. I'm book. I'm reading it right now. It's so beautiful. Of course, you are. Yeah, he says in that book that um, racism is the child of economic injustice. Uh, racism is not the parent. Racism is the child. Ooh. Um, so mm. uh, the necessity in this country of building a robust economy starting 400 years ago, um, we, uh, this country needed a free labor force to do that. And, and then all of the ideologies of racism justified African slavery. Um, so the economic issue is primary. And to my mind, and I, uh, I've seen this my whole life, this is from a lifetime of observation of evangelical culture. Evangelical culture is made up of evangelical organizations and evangelical churches. And um, we have not even started to do this level of reflection, um, let alone anything about race. But we have not at all um, tried to come to grips with the way that capitalism um, thoroughly enslaves evangelical culture, um, mm. capitalism and economic forces. Like, so, uh, let me give you an example. Let me give an example of how this works. Um, and you know this well, Mike, um, white pastor, Jim, 
uh, pastor of 450 member, um, you know, Joey Bag of Donuts uh, Evangelical Church is somewhere in the Midwest. Um, pastor Jim is gripped by all that's happening in our culture and is reading some good stuff on, on race and all this kind of stuff. And he wants to talk about it with his church. Mm. Um, I mean, you tell me, Mike, why doesn't he? You know <laughs> the why economic, he The economics. It's the economics. Yep. So um, this topic, um, the injustices that black people suffer in this land, this has been the topic mm. for a long time in almost every black church uh, that loves Jesus in this land. Mm. White people do not want to hear about it. And white people can tell Pastor Jim they don't want to hear about it yeah. um, because there's probably five people in that 450-person church who are giving about 50 to 60% of you know the offering. And uh, Pastor Jim has a couple kids that he's sending to school and he's got one <laughs> child with special needs and he's got a mortgage to pay. And, and right. it's like, he's got financial issues. And if a couple of those big givers talk to pastor Jim about why they don't want to hear any more about race or they don't want to be made to feel guilty. Um, or if a handful of people in the church start to leave, um, and you know, it's great pastor Jim that you feel led to be talking about this and you have this burden but you're discouraging God's people. We don't want to hear about this. We want to hear it's about it. It's divisive. We, yeah, it's divisive. We, don't we want to hear about today. No. Tell us how to have a fulfilling marriage. Tell us how to have a fulfilling, <laughs> um, you know, job and career and how I can uh, evangelize my neighbors. Don't talk to me about all this other stuff. That's that's their issue. This isn't our issue. So, um, I don't expect evangelical organizational leaders who have to please donors, they're not going to talk about this. Mm. I don't expect evangelical pastors, white evangelical pastors to talk about this. So we are simply not, our movement um, is simply not going to be a catalyst for, um, for change, for transformation, for repentance, for confession, for lament, for all these Christian practices. We're just, we are just not interested and it's because of the God mammon that has its grip on our culture. So, I mean, Bonnie, what would I like to see happen? Yeah, I would love to see, um, I mean, first to free ourselves from the shackles of economics. I think I would love to see a massive wave of pastors uh, find jobs outside the church and stop taking a paycheck from the church. Um, so that they could actually love the church and speak the truth to the church. Mm. I would love to see a radical movement of um, repentance and confession of sin. I'd love to see a movement in our churches of listening and of committing to learn, of um, forming partnerships um, with churches around town that are other and different than us and mm. committing to a 25-year covenant of conversation and sharing a meal once or twice a month. Um, it'd be great to see the church just be the church instead of, um, you know, an organization for the, uh, the pacification of white suburbanites. Um, <laughs> I don't know. This is largely what our culture has become, what, our, what even white evangelical culture has become. But I'd love to see um, people with voices of influence highlight this issue as um, a supremely gospel issue that has to be on our radars uh, for the next generation and, and beyond. Mm. I'd love to see churches gather uh, with partner churches and advocate um, to local school districts and city 
you know, city uh, governments and state governments to rethink um, how money is allocated for public education. Hmm. Um, I mean, these are ways that we could actually turn away from idolatry to uh, mammon and begin to serve the one true God um, by being a people that are looking out for everyone in our local areas. Mm. Um, I mean, there are, there are loads of injustices going on that we are blind to um, and that we have motivation to not see mm. because they all uh, support our comfort um, and our pursuit of comfort. So I'd love to see us uh, understand our identities as Christian our corporate identities as Christian and how that is different than our corporate identities or even in our individual identities from being American. Mm. Um, and I don't have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but I've given up my rights at my baptism um, and that uh, I want to explore all the realities of, uh, of what that uh, ridiculously outrageous decision got me into. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot I think that we could actually explore um, if we if we plunged into the depths of what it actually meant to be Christian. Yeah, I need a Stafford comment right now because he's looking like Jesus, like white Jesus. <laughs> and what is he's white I'm the Jesus? Last person, I'm the last person person that should speak. Just given that demographic, yesterday there was a, a prominent Christian magazine that quoted a very prominent worship uh what i don't know even what you call them people who make lots of money off of writing worship songs um and they they made some comment about uh racial injustice and how it should be the you know uh the how the church should be i don't know something something supporting our uh you know fight for racial injustice but then in the comments people are just like these folks give money and speak on behalf of institutions that I'm trying to be vague with my terminology mm. that, uh, that support opposite. Right. So it's like this idea of the public persona versus the, like where your actual heart money is, mm. yeah. uh, it seems to be, that's where I see the big divide and kind of what you're talking about. Like we had like, yeah, there I there are a ton of pastors and podcasts and people have been sending a few over that I've been listening to. They're like, what do you, what's your opinion on what this pastor has to say about this topic and stuff? And it's like, oh yeah, he's saying a lot of great things in this sermon, but like in a month from now or two months from now, um, will this just have been an archived topic? Yeah. And will we kind of get back to business as usual and it's just, so I don't know, I like, in some ways, this feels like a deconstructive moment of, of like, I, like, spe like environmentally speaking, we were joking the other day, like, it would be great for the earth to have a coronavirus break, like a COVID break every six or seven years where we all just like, we don't get sick, but we all just have to go into our houses for like three to six months. Like a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Like yeah, leading like a to a jubilee. Yeah, totally. So, exactly. Every seven years, maybe we all go into our houses for seven months and let the earth breathe for yeah. a little bit and kind of like reset and then we can go back out and start breaking it again. <laughs> I find so, so coming into January, so many of my friends um, were talking about the 2020, the year of vision, you know, <laughs> and clarity and. 
And I and I feel like, you know, what's meant by that is my personal dreams and ambitions and whatever. What God's done, again, God doing it in a very, very, you know, generic sense. But but what God has allowed to happen is he's given us really clear vision on things we never wanted to acknowledge, right? What's the pandemic exposed? What's the election exposed? What's the, um, what has this uh, George Floyd and everything around that, what is that exposed in our culture? I mean, there's plenty. I've just found it ironic that, you know, we, we thought vision meant clarity about me, my blessing, and my future. And instead, what we've gotten is clarity on how sick we really are. Yeah. Like how, how deep the powers and the principalities have held captive the church. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I think you're right. Um, just, yeah. Just stop there. Just stop there. Just say that. <laughs> and then. I think that that's true. Um, but I, I guess I fear that we don't, that uh, I don't have confidence that we're going to actually learn anything. I would love to think that we did, that we will. Um, I just think that we have too much experience in wanting to get past all this. Um, I think that we're not actually um, taking the time to do the deep reflection. Um, and it's also, um, it's, it's good to have a catalyst to actually wake up to a lot of things. Um, yeah, but I think this is, the church should be about being the catalyst all the time, especially when things look like and feel like they're like they're not crisis oriented. Mm. Um, uh, because one of the illusions about living in our modern world is that um, uh, crisis is this thing that erupts. Mm. Uh, so George Floyd uh, ignited a crisis, or the coronavirus uh, exposed crises, or something like that. Um, but I think it's important to understand that there are there's been a 401 year crisis, um, going on with, um, with the, um, the genocide of the people that were on this land before white people were here. And then the enslavement of Africans brought here and degraded and, um, made to endure horrors at the hands of white people for 401 years. So, um, I know I, I hear what you're saying, and it's like, yeah, all our plans for 2020 are thrown off. Um, but it's like, this is exactly what the church should be wanting all the time hmm. um, and trying to bring about it with a prophetic voice of like, hey, everyone, you know, everything looks normal. But this is terrible. Like, this is what Isaiah is all about. Like, in the middle of a strong economy, Isaiah has to cry out about these injustices. Everyone's like, would you shut up? Everything's fine. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I wish that our, that our movement, which was initially sort of more of a prophetic movement, I wish we were about waking ourselves up to these realities. I'm not sure that we're waking up to them the way that we need to uh, in this current moment. I just know there's a lot of people that don't want to. That's for sure. Bonnie, what do you what what do you think of that? Do you have hope for the evangelical church kind of as a whole? around this um not really i agree with gombus um in that i just think that i i it not to say that individuals can't change or um we can't see like people in within the evangelical church making movements i don't think though uh 
that it could survive in its current state, nor do I think mm. it should. So I think that Ooh, even if bam. yeah, there is movement towards reconciliation, towards um, trying to dismantle some of these systems, it's built too much on power that mm-hmm. I don't think it would survive. And I think that most people know that. So to say, I have if I'm going to actively engage in this movement, I'm going to be dismantling this big system I'm a part of. Yeah. Uh, and into what? Nobody knows. So I think that's too terrifying for uh, the, that the evangelical system as a whole. Mm. Yeah, it requires power sharing, mm-hmm. power surrender, uh, money surrender. Yeah. Um, in the midst of a I mean, money crunch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all these all these things that um, I mean, evangelicalism is wired toward prestige building, uh, credential building, power mm-hmm. grabbing, uh, money accumulation, uh, and we we have Bible language for all this. You know, we want to widen our impact, or we want to reach <laughs> more people. All the I mean, these are all these are all BS ways of talking that 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 smuggle in our idolatries, and we just sprinkle Jesus on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Bonnie's right. Like the foundation, um, the soil, uh, the, our roots are in capitalism and money and power and prestige and control. And it's going to take, it's going to take a lot for, um, for, for us to, to grapple with that. What role do white voices have in this? Do you think oh, we, we've, um, obviously, part of the re-education has been elevating voices that aren't normally elevated. Um, but, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, there's something powerful about white evangelicals speaking to white evangelicals. You know, can I, I don't know that that can be replicated, unfortunately. Do you see that to be the case as well? Do you see that um, that that white people with platforms best use those platforms in what way, you know, not just to highlight marginalized people, but in doing this, this sort of deconstructing. Yeah, I think so. Uh, let's see here. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not sure this is deconstruction so much as it is just naming or identifying Mm. realities. Mm. Um, uh, exposing, um, yeah, I, boy, boy, that's a great question, Mike. I struggle with this. I, I just, um, what I want to avoid is the is the common reality that black people say a thing, they point to a thing, they identify a thing, uh, they draw our attention to a thing, but we will listen if a white person says it. Mm-hmm. Like that's problematic. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of value in, um, in white people speaking up and in, in naming all these realities, uh, for what they are and people who have, um, uh, a voice or platform. Um, I think it's helpful to do that. Um, I'm, I find myself in the middle of this and I'm casting about for what's good and what's helpful. And I, um, I'm not exactly sure. I, I know on a local level, what is more helpful, but, um, to my mind, it just seems like reading education. Let's talk about this. Let's not 
Let's not let it be on the back burner. Like Tim was saying, let's not let this be just another topic next week. It's back to, you know, how to, whatever, how to get along with your kid. Um, it seems like we have to be willing, white people have to be willing to be the difficult person that people are sick of hearing from. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that, um, and I think that that, uh, we've been that in other ways. I think that we need to be ready. Um, and, uh, this is uh, Mike and Tim. I think we talked about this when we were talking about, um, podcasting a couple months ago in just converse, you know, private conversation. But, um, I think that this has to affect how we conceive of, um, writing and publishing speaking. Um, because, um, I mean, I had written some things recently and was told by an editor, um, you know, you've got to tone this down a bit, uh, because, you know, you're going to alienate certain readers. Mm. Um, and I can imagine being told on, uh, you know, blogging format or podcasting, you know, you've got to tone it down or you, you keep talking too much about this. Um, I think we've got to reckon with that and, and search our own hearts and our motivations for why we're doing what we're doing. If it's uh, to see whether it's genuinely gospel oriented or whether we're wanting to be popular or build a following or get as many likes as we can. Um, yeah, I think that a lot of us uh, in these situations, I think have to evaluate where are we going to cast our lot? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think too, like what you said, there's such a, I've been seeing too, um, white people speaking up before they've done learning mm-hmm. and education. And so then when somebody says, hey, that's actually offensive or like points out a blind spot, it's not met with a posture of learning and humility, but a posture of defensiveness now. Mm. And that doesn't, that alienates people. Like I, we just, at, at some level, it feels like the evangelical church where we aren't good at admitting our mistakes on a big level. Mm. So on a small level, we aren't mm. either. Um, and I just, um, I would love to hear your, th- what do you think about this Gombas, as we wrap up? But I feel like there's, um, a big part of it. We were talking about, we are joking about Tim being white Jesus and stuff, but <laughs> there, I think there is a problem when we aren't actively discussing that Jesus was Brown and that there are like, aren't any white people in the Bible. What? <laughs> so what? I know, but I mean, it's like, we just, we have such a way and we kind of talked about this on that Brueggemann podcast, but we have such a way of taking the text and then just directly applying it. And so when we do that, we are constantly imagining it's happening in our, our white communities or whatever it is. And so I even think something in terms of like a spiritual exercise of like literally picturing what you're reading in the Bible as people of a different race than you are would be very beneficial. It's like a, it has to be this whole body, mind, everything mm-hmm. transformation. I don't know. Just seems like we're really kind of without that. Like we could talk about it, racism, and we could talk about America. But I think that if we don't get down to the fact that Jesus didn't look like us, God isn't an American, you know, like or an evangelical, I think we're going to miss some of it. Yeah. That, that, yeah. We have to do that imaginative work to, yeah. to renovate yeah. and thoroughly um, overhaul our imaginations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so interesting that you say that, Bonnie, because it's, um, I was thinking about 
um, about this exercise of um, just encouraging. In fact, if there's one thing churches could do, I think this would be a great exercise. Take, take a month or two uh, and just do a corporate reading of the, the Exodus narrative mm. over and over and over. And, and then explore the ways in which white Christians are Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. Like in that story, um, white American Christians are Pharaoh mm -hmm. and the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And black people are the Israelites. And uh, white Christians have been involved in structures of oppression. Mm -hmm. And we've demanded more. And then we've demanded more and taken away what they already have. Uh, and their cries have uh, risen to God, and He's going to act on their behalf. I mean, the Exodus narrative is not about me uh, <laughs> finding my calling or finding my true whatever. Uh, it's about God liberating a people who are oppressed. And yeah. the story of America over the last 401 years is the story of the white oppression of indigenous peoples and um, and african enslaved african people yeah. um and then slavery just taking other forms so I mean, there's a lot of um a lot of negativity to all this um but to my mind naming all these realities for what they are opens up possibilities to see where the gospel can be injected and overtake this whole situation the gospel is always bigger than all these realities mm -hmm. and it, if we grapple with it it provides us a roadmap. um for finding our ways toward hope. Mm -hmm. It's just that um, to get there, we need our brothers and sisters from all cultures. So all the Hispanic churches in my town, all the black churches in my town, I mean, we're all conversing together. How do we do this? How do we be Christian in this city, in this time, in this place? Mm. Um, and then praying, praying, discussing, reading scripture, and um, finding ways forward is, is the way to, to do it and identifying how our idolatries are keeping us from that kind of a project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we begin to imagine that sort of project, uh, white church leaders, I think, should sit down with a legal pad and start writing down all the reasons why something like that is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then everybody hold up your sheet and just say, these are our idols. Mm -hmm probably comes back to money and I'm, I'm sure money would lace all of those oh but there's hope goodness. it's just going to be it's going to take radical repentance mm -hmm. but yeah. but that's where we that's where we receive god's life and joy and that's what sustains us even though you know it always looks precarious mm -hmm. it, it looks like we're going to lose everything you know yeah. but yeah, it seems like it takes like a, everybody has to um, sign on for like, I don't want to say eternal because I don't mean that, but for however long this current physical existence is around, that's the repentance that we have to sign on for. Because it's like we have this great idea of like reacting in moments, but like there's always going to be some structure or some form or some group that's trying to rebuild that status quo. And if we're not committed to like continually fighting this, knowing that this is going to be a fight, all, all injustices are, is going to be a fight for as long as we're kind of governing this time period. I just, it's like, it has to be a complete, like 
you know, we talked about in the last episode with faith, like repentance as like a complete turnaround, looking into almost Overhaul. a foreign direction that we're mm-hmm. not familiar with and being like, okay, I'm going to listen to learn at what I'm looking at. And then I'm going to commit to facing in this direction and moving forward and not, you know, and if I start to turn around a little bit, having accountability in repentance where it's like, Hey, you know, Tim, your, your, your eyes are averting back over here, you know, wake up and then I can do that as well for somebody. And yeah. there's like overall commitment to just like, you know, we're, we have a hard time. We, we tend to choose ourselves. So being reminded of that, being active and not doing that seems to be kind of at the, at the root of so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What you just described to is, is basically being Christian. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, like that's the, just to think about the difference between what you just said and what the norm is. Yeah. That's the difference between a genuine Christian vision and like what we've fallen into. Um, so yeah, we don't handle, as kind of Bonnie was indicating, we don't handle these micro crises well mm-hmm. because we're not preparing, our, preparing ourselves as lifelong disciples that have made a radical decision, you know, 20 some years ago to live a life of right surrender and of looking out for others. Um, we haven't been trained in that way of life so that when these crises arise, we just don't know what to do. Mm. But if, if we had that training, it'd be like, oh yeah, this is just another one of these. And here's what the church does. We know what to do. Right. It's intuitive because we've been trained. Dang. Well, clearly Gombus has been storing up. Um, that was... You know, I just God, chilled for, you know, the, the camping just, trip was really restorative. So I, you know. <laughs> I, I, we won't let your publisher hear this one. Um, I'm totally curious about which book though they were talking about. Uh, but man, I, so anyway, our dream selfishly for Vox has been uh, to be a place where we could have really interesting conversations and learn a lot. And my goodness, you, uh, Tim, and Bonnie have just been some of the greatest conversation partners. I've learned, I've learned so much. And so cool. it's, um, been a it's, it's, it's fun to recommend Faith Improvised. Bonnie, you are remarkable and um, you really are an amazing conversation partner. I've learned, I've learned a lot from you, not just over the last year, but over the years. Mm. You've helped me to be a better better Jesus follower for sure. Oh, same. Absolutely the same. So, um, I'm thrilled for Tim shell. I'm thrilled for our audience to get sort of, uh, you guys unfiltered in some ways. And, um, anyway, it's just a joy to be able to do this sincerely. Thank you. Thank you all for this. And I, I mean, I'm, I walk away from conversations like these so challenged mm-hmm. and so invigorated. Like I don't yeah. feel guilt. I feel inspired. That's good. Because yeah. I, what, I want to embody Jesus faithfully. That's the whole, that's the point. Yeah, that's, that's the point. goal. Yeah. And uh, man, it's so good to help, help me see some of this. So dang, great stuff, you guys. Um, all right, friends. Well, listen, we'll wrap it up on this end. We love you. We encourage you to check out Tim Shell, Faith Improvised. And, um, and as always, may Jesus take the wheel. Thank you, Carrie Underwood. <laughs> <laughs>
The Vox Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxpodcast. You can also engage with the hosts on social media at facebook.com backslash voxpodcast, on Instagram at voxpodcast, and on Twitter at Mike Erie. Thank you for walking this road with us.